0: This is the This is gonna hurt podcast with Jay Gordon Duncan hello friends and welcome to a Wednesday wisdom episode of the This is gonna hurt podcast with Jay Gordon Duncan and if you're wondering why the J the answer is I am not a bagpipe player and if that joke doesn't make any sense I encourage you to check out episode 0 where I explain that joke as well as the purpose of the this is gonna hurt podcast. But as to today's episode, our Wednesday Wisdom episodes are this. I am sharing the audio of my sermons from the church I pastor, Evident Grace Fellowship in Fredericksburg, Virginia, as well as sermons from churches I have pastored prior, as well as sermons that I've preached at other places. And I'm sharing them with you for this reason. My sermons are usually not too long. They're between 30 and 40 minutes long. And by sharing them with you, it gives you a chance for some spiritual encouragement midweek. So I hope you enjoy it. I hope it's challenging and encouraging, like I said. And if it is, would you please send me a note at uh, gordon at jgordonnuckin.com or maybe even share this sermon online, Facebook, or on your Instagram story. I hope you enjoy it. So let's get to the sermon. I'm incredibly excited about what God's doing with us in this Advent series. If you weren't with us last week, friends, you missed out. Uh, The good thing is you can listen to it, and the good thing is we know that every week the Spirit shows up with us. Uh, But from the interaction I had, I feel like uh, the sermon and the service touched on issues and things that folks really have struggled with, the areas of shame that they would like to move on from, and I pray that God would continue to do that. So thankfully, he meets us each and every Sunday, and I pray that he's going to do it again just as Jim prayed. Uh, So this week, uh, I don't know if this ever happens to you, I learned something about myself, uh, which I was completely unaware, and it was stunning. So I don't know if that happens to you. Every now and then you have this moment of objectivity, maybe about something you've done or why you did it, and it just helps you realize something about yourself that you've never known. And so this happened to me this week. I was listening to a podcast called Business Wars. Love this podcast. Every episode's about 26 minutes long. I listen to everything at one and a half speed. You can knock it out real quickly. It's like three episodes in one workout. And so Business Wars goes like this. Each season, it takes two similar businesses, that, and it talks about the battle they went through. So Netflix versus Blockbuster, and what happened, and, and how they kind of cheated, or how they found out about the other. And so that was fascinating. There's Nike versus Adidas. There's like 14 seasons. But I listened to Marvel Comics versus DC Comics. And I, that was the first one I listened to. I just ate it up because I got my first comic book at age five. And honestly, through a senior year in high school, I was still reading comic books, which gives you a picture of what my high school life was like. But I absolutely love this podcast because it talks about how they stole one character from the next and, and, and who was drawing them and Stan Lee and, and Jack Kirby and all those people that I cared about. And I was a Marvel fan. And so I just love this podcast. And so I had this moment where I thought to myself, well, I wonder why I never drew a comic book. And I know I have severely limited skills. And then I remembered I did. In seventh grade, I drew a comic book. And I know somewhere in this world, I have it. I know somewhere it's in some box or in something somewhere. Now, this was the name of the comic book. I don't know why it wasn't popular. It was called uh, Eugene, the Unknown Hero. Now, this was my comic book character, Eugene, the Unknown Hero. Now, this is the story of Eugene, the Unknown Hero. This is my seventh grade year. Uh, Eugene had some manner of superpowers. I didn't flesh them out too deeply. But every time he saved someone, someone else got credit. And that was the the deal. So he would rescue someone or defeat some villain, and then everyone else would thank someone else. So he was sort of this sad sack, Peter Parker type hero that he was a teenager. He didn't know how to use his powers. But no matter what, the joke at the end of the comic book is someone else got credit. And so I'm thinking to myself now here at age 48, I'm like, why did I write about Eugene, the unknown hero? Why did I write about this unknown, invisible person? And I got it. Like this revelation, and it's incredibly sad why I wrote Eugene the Unknown Hero. I've shared this story with a couple of you. The last day of sixth grade, we were out behind Smithfield Elementary, uh, my, my school, and there's this giant field. Our, our, our recess just had this giant this field to play in. It was dirt. I mean, I mean, you had some playground equipment, just big open space, perfect for kickball. The bell rings for recess to end. And everybody is hurting. in. Last day of sixth grade. And and everyone in those days was also a professional wrestling fan. Again, picture of my my teenage years. And so uh, there's this wrestling move called a bulldog. And so that's when you run up behind someone, at least in wrestling, and you put the arm around the back of the neck, and you drive him into the ground. That works in wrestling, okay? So the bell rings, and I begin to walk inside, and someone comes up behind me, Bulldogs me in the ground and knocks me unconscious. My neurologist said that's probably one of the contributing factors to my epilepsy, just by a, a side note. Now, I wake up, and the playground's empty. Every kid, every teacher is gone. They just didn't see me. And so I have this terrible headache, and I'm just, there's no one there. And so I don't even go back to my classroom. I just stumble to the office and go, I don't feel very well. I need to call mom and dad. And they came and picked me up. And honestly, I don't know. I do know the name of that guy. I found him on Facebook one day. But I don't really know. I mean, you can't expel someone the last day of school. So all of a sudden, I have this revelation. That's why I wrote Eugene, the unknown hero. I'm like, I was invisible that day. I got knocked unconscious, and there was no one there. Like my buddies, one of these days, I don't need to know. I don't need to know why no one actually helped me. It's probably best. I've moved on, obviously. But that's why I wrote about Eugene, the Unknown Hero. And it fits this sermon because the idea here is the the power of shame, which is either something that someone puts on you or something you put on yourself, is that it, it just leaves you feeling alone and isolated. And you sit in that shame and you feel like there's nothing that can be done about it. Because shame is not what we talk about. If you talk about it, it's not really shame. You see, the tendency for us is to just hold those things with inside. And shame is corrosive. It's the second most powerful emotion next to love. And we just, we have these moments and we have these things, again, that has been done to us or things we put on ourselves that we just don't feel like can be spoken of. We don't feel like they can be healed. We don't feel like something can actually change it. We get used to it in our lives. And so what I want to do in this sermon is I want to look at three things that cause shame. I don't want them to have that kind of power in our life. If we speak about them, we break that power. And then I want us to look at how the birth of Jesus actually defeats those things. I want this series in Advent, and as it pushes on all through next year into Romans, I want us to just defeat the power of shame in our lives by just lifting up the work of Jesus. So that's where we're going to go here today. We're going to look at three things that cause shame. And then I want to show you, and I pray that the power of the Spirit rushes into you to say, but there's more powerful things in my life than that shame, and it's the work of Jesus. So our big idea is the same. Every single sermon in December is going to be the end of shame. When we get to Romans, I'll go back to varying it up a little bit. But every single one in December is the end of shame. Okay? And we're gonna look at these three causes. Here they are. Here are three causes of shame. Okay? Unkept promises, the lack of compassion, and humiliation. Those things cause shame. Unkept promises, the lack of compassion, and humiliation. And we're gonna and what I'm gonna do in each one of these points, I'm gonna show you that, and then I'm gonna give you in the notes how Jesus defeats it. Okay? So that's where we're going. Let's look at the first one, okay? Cause of shame, unkept promises. Guess what the end of shame is? God keeps his promises. If unkept promises cause shame, someone who has real power has got to defeat it. Someone's got to keep. A promise, right? I and mean, we've seen so many movies, right, about the uh, the, the young girl and, and she's got this terrible dad and he's, he's terrible and terrible and never kept promises. And then she meets the sweet boy who's kind to her, right? It's like the picture of a, a kept promise versus the unkept promise. But we're going to blow this up to like cosmic spiritual sense. It's going to be bigger than the rom-com. It's going to be God keeping promises so that shame is truly defeated in our lives. So let's look at verse 1 of Luke 2, okay? In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Okay, hold up here. Now, in Christmas sermons, you've really only got about ten passages. There's typically four sermons per advent. So if I've told you some of these things before, I can't help it. We've looked at Luke 2 before, okay? So let's talk about Caesar, first of all. Every Caesar in the line of Caesar demanded something of the population. And that demand was this. You had to say, Caesar is Lord. That was demanded of everyone. So a a guard or a Roman soldier could show up to you and say to you, who is your master? And if you didn't say Caesar is Lord, you could be put in jail or you could be executed. Okay? So that meant for the Jew, the Israelite who wanted a Savior, you had two options. You could violate the first two commandments and say, Caesar is Lord, or you could be put in jail, or you could be executed. Those are the kind of power. Now, that's shameful, right? You're a dad, and you've got a family to protect, and the soldier says up to you, who is your master? And you are tempted, right? What do you do? If I go to jail, I can't care for my family. And you could say, Caesar is Lord, and then you haven't served your God. Can you see just the fact that Caesar existed? Anytime a despot, a despot or someone who takes that kind of control over a people... Anytime a dictator, shame is immediately induced. And that's what's going on here. So Caesar wants a census. Why would you want a census? Two reasons. One, he can boast about how big his kingdom is. Look how many people are under my control. Second, I know how to tax them better. He knows where everybody is. He knows where their hometown is. So the whole purpose of this is to lord power. Again, that's shame-inducing. Anytime power is lorded over someone, you lose control. You lose your person. So Caesar is doing this in this moment of arrogance and power. Go home. I want to know how big my kingdom is. So verse 2, this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Uh, uh, Non-Christian historians uh, verified this. There were actually two. There was one in 3 A.D. and one in 6 A.D. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. Did you know that this was about one-fifth of the world's population at this point in time? Caesar had a vast kingdom. About one-fifth of all the world had to migrate home. That's what's going on right now. A massive upheaval for weeks, where industry would slow down, where crops and animals would die because you left them. This is a giant, near-worldwide effort. Also, Caesar could lord his power over his subjects and feel better about himself. You would leave your farm and you would have to take everybody. You would take some with you, you would take some of your, 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 your uh, animals, you would do everything you could, but you would leave your land for whatever amount of time it meant to go home and then come back. So Caesar was actually causing wide destruction just so he could find this out. And you're leaving these things, and all these emotions are bound up in this moment. Verse 4, And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. So David is of the line, excuse me, uh, Joseph is of the line of David. And we also learn that Mary is as well. If you take the, the tributaries of their, of their families, David goes out like this, and Mary and Joseph uh, were both parts of that family, and they come back. And we know, as we've seen or at least have mentioned in 1 Samuel, is that God had promised to David. Uh, this comes really apparent if we'd gotten into 2 Samuel. But God had promised to David that one of the people in his lineage would ultimately always sit on the throne. And the promise of a Savior came from that promise to David. And last week we looked at Isaiah 9, which said specifically that Savior would be born in Bethlehem. And so here's the point here, is that God had made these promises, and he is keeping his promise. In fact, God is so powerful, he would even use the actions of an evil, corrupt dictator, an evil and corrupt Caesar, God would use that to bring about his purposes. So friends, right now, as you're struggling with whatever you're struggling with, especially if you're struggling and sitting in shame that marinates, and you look at your circumstances around you, and you wonder, is there any hope here? Is there any way this relationship's going to get better? Is there any way that we're going to be able to resolve this conflict? Is reconciliation or peace ever possible? When you look at the awful circumstances, it's tempting To look by sight and not by faith. And if you had looked at this moment in the first century, there's no way this moment would look like the coming of the Savior. In fact, it would look like that darkness and every manner of oppression was only growing. But what God was doing is he was using those circumstances to keep a promise. And that promise is that a Savior would come, He would come through the line of David, and He would be born in Bethlehem. You see here, friends, we are tempted. It's why I use this passage for our time of repentance. We are tempted always to look by sight and think, well, I've got to do this, I've got to do this, I've got to do this, especially when we're trying to overcome some sort of shame in our life. And we're tempted to do that with God. We're tempted to offer our effort to God to try to persuade him to what we need. But that's not it. God doesn't need your broken promises. What God needs right now is your brokenness. Do you understand that? Because if you make a promise to God and you try to do effort after effort to impress him, you're going to fail. I don't mean to be pessimistic. God enables us towards obedience. Of course he does. But we're not going to earn and earn and earn to persuade him. What God needs more than broken promises is the brokenness that you have to offer him. And what that means is you need some transparency. When you are hurt and broken, you need to be honest to the depths that you have before God. Because he's the one who keeps promises. Early on in our church, we faced a crossroads. Because we've done everything we can by God's power to make this a church that's full of grace and is not legalistic and doesn't guilt and shame. We've done everything we can. At times we have failed, and at times God has enabled us to persevere. And there was a specific moment in this church when someone shared in a Bible study that they were angry with God. And I was confronted with this because someone else came to me and said, you can't have people telling others that they're angry with God. That's wrong. And I said, listen. I understand your reaction. A holy and righteous God deserves our respect and our worship. But here's the thing. God knows when you're angry with Him. So He's not surprised for you actually articulate it. It's healthier in your relationship with God to actually say, God, I'm angry with you because He's not surprised. Anything else is to say you should be ashamed for being angry with God. And you shouldn't be. You may need to move towards faith and love and obedience, but you have to own that brokenness for God to heal it. Any brokenness before God that you don't offer to Him is brokenness that's not healed. And the hope is that we go, wait a minute, I know though, I know that it's God who keeps His promises, so I don't have to approach God perfectly. I know it's God who keeps His promises, so I can bring to Him my brokenness, I can bring to him what's happened to me or perhaps what I've done. And the covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God is the one who heals it. That's what's happening here in Luke. It's the working out of God, keeping his promises so his people might be healed. Friends, when things are... I'm going to try to read my handwriting. I can't read it all here. That's what happens when I make notes in the morning. Forgive me. I had typed up and now I can't read them all. When things are at the worst, that's when we need to remind ourselves that it's God who keeps his promises. That is what you count on most in difficult circumstances. And in this moment where the whole world is being moved just to please the selfish motives and the pride of an oppressive Caesar that's when God was working the most to bring about his Savior. That's when God was working to heal the sin and shame of his people. Let's move on. Let's move on. Cause of shame? The lack of compassion. The end of shame is the sympathetic Savior. How many of you have ever needed compassion from someone? Been honest and vulnerable... And when you didn't receive compassion back, what was your response? Have any of you ever been in that circumstance? I know you have. I know you have. What's the heart's reaction when you need compassion and you don't get it? My first reaction is always anger. It's not yours. There's a we got a whole, like, we got a whole, got a whole wheel of fortune here of emotions, right? But I can tell you mine is typically anger. Because that means I had an expectation of someone that they'd be compassionate. And then when I didn't get it, I was angry. But that's not everybody, right? Some folks go, "That's hey, my fault, right? You start to beat yourself. Maybe I don't deserve compassion. Others are like, it's what I get for being vulnerable, right? You go to just sort of a, a, a pessimistic, maybe even cynical view, I, every time I try to be vulnerable, I get hurt anyway, right? Can you see all the emotions? Every one of those is shame-filled, right? Everyone, even anger. You're like, well, I, exposed, I, I was vulnerable, and then I, I didn't get compassion in, so I'll show you. Every one of those is a matter of shame. If compassion isn't shown, shame always shows up. Always. That shows you, as a church, how important showing compassion is. That means you will the power of sympathy and care and compassion or you will the power of shame. That's the risk of being part of a church that cares about the scriptures. That's the risk of being a part of a church that talks about the need of the gospel because that means you're going to risk getting hurt. But it also shows you the beauty and the power of the church when compassion is shown. So in this verse, while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. The reason I show this to you is you have a Savior who is sympathetic to exactly what you've been through. Exactly what you have been through. Your Savior was a man and a human just like us. When I say it was a birth just like ours, it wasn't. It was harder. It didn't have any of the conveniences and comforts that ours do. None. I'll mention this in a moment, but I can't can't help mention it here. They went to their hometown, and there was no place for them to stay. Every year, we got to remember this. They went home, and no one would keep them. Why? Because they all thought, that Mary and Joseph had violated the covenant pact. They all thought that they had engaged in premarital sex. They're shaming them. You can't be in my home. You can't be. You guys are loose with your morals. You have violated the command of God. The very act they have no place to stay is their families shaming them. There's not even a friend of the family. There's no one will take them in. So your Savior understands the difficulty and the pain that we go through. And a sympathetic Savior knows how to show compassion to those who are in need. Our Savior understands that full spectrum. Born Joseph's son, not wealthy whatsoever, in a backwoods town that people have said nothing good could come from. When he started his ministry, people were like, who is this guy? Who is this guy? See, from that Naz- nothing good can come from those areas. There's a good, healthy amount of racism coming in there. Even his disciples would rebuke him. Took to after his resurrection, and uh, late Matthew, when they finally go, "You're God." And then, as the church got going in Acts and into the first century, there was this wrestle: Was he really a man? Was he? Was he really God? Those those early heresies all sprang up because they were wrestling with: Can it really be man? Can it really be God? Friends, this is the height of God's compassion to you. Because Christ took on human flesh to walk through the full spectrum of emotions and hurt, the depths of humiliation. He is a sympathetic Savior. A sympathetic Savior. We'll see this a little bit later when we get into Hebrew. Actually, let's go ahead and do it now. Hebrews 2 says this. Uh, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation's a, a big word like Fahrenheit. It's a big word. Okay? Pro- propitiation means this. It means it's a sacrifice that satisfies the wrath of God. Okay? It's a, it's a sacrifice that satisfies the wrath of God. That means that sin deserved the wrath of God. But Jesus' sacrifice answered all that wrath. So Hebrews two seventeen tells us this. He had to be made like us in every respect, or the sacrifice wouldn't satisfy the wrath of God. That's compassion. That means in every area that we've been weak, Christ has been weak. In every area we've been tempted, Christ has been tempted. In every area where there was no voice for you, Christ had no voice for him. In every area when he's left alone on a playground, he was left alone. Do you understand? Wherever you have that moment where no one showed compassion to you, that button that hurts when you think about it, you can say, but my Savior endured that because he loves me. That's God's compassion. And we see that manifest here in this birth because he's walking through the very things that we walk through. That touches on the most shameful points of our life, but it begins to heal it as well. Uh, Gregory of Nazianzus, he's one of those uh, early church fathers who helped us understand the Trinity. He said this, I love this quote, "...that which he has not assumed, he has not healed." Is that up there somewhere? I may have gotten out of order. Excuse me. That which he has not assumed, he has not healed. Now, the, this assumption here, this assuming, is called the incarnation. Right? The incarnation is God taking on human flesh. So, every, you can read it the other way. Everything that Jesus has assumed, he has healed. Everything he took on, he healed and redeemed. If he hadn't, then he wouldn't heal it. That's the beauty of the incarnation. It's what the early church wrestled with and didn't understand. It's where heresies like uh, Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness don't get it today. It's where people who really can't understand that he can be fully man and fully God at the same time. Contradictory in the eyes of the world, but it's comforting to those who have faith. He has assumed human flesh. He has assumed every hurt. He has assumed every rejection. He has assumed every shame so that he can heal every one of them. You may feel utterly alone in some aspect, but you are not because Christ has walked that with you and for you. He gives us hope for the shame that we are not willing to address. Let's move on a little bit more. Cause of shame Humiliation, the end of shame, a man of sorrows. It's good to be human. It's good to be human. She gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. You know, uh, I I love. Listen, we've got a lot of traditions uh, about what it looked like, and you you see maybe some living nativities or some of the your houses in your neighborhood. And there's there's a a, a little uh, makeshift crib of Jesus, and, and then there's people around it, and you put some wise men around. They're they're beautiful, but that's inaccurate completely. If you want to understand what an inn looked like it's uh It's like going to the beach and uh, you park your two cars underneath the house, and then the floors are above it. That's a more accurate picture of what an inn would be in the first century, okay so it's not hair seer to have those those beautiful little uh, images here, but it's more it's more like uh, you're parked underneath the garage of an inn. Now consider that for a moment. Everyone is upstairs and you're down with the animals in the animal parking garage, and that's where Jesus is. I'm confident that they weren't soundproof walls in the first century. There's God, it's a family reunion literally happening above them. Because the only reason everyone has returned home is to be home and see family to be registered. It's a joyful scenario up above, and you're with the smelly animals below. That is humiliating. It's the stereotypical not being invited to the party. It's the, I don't fit in anywhere. It's the, we are homeless. It's a picture of need and humiliation. And that's where Jesus was born for you. And the hope is that he is a man of sorrows. That's our hope. That's what puts an end to it because he is the man of sorrows, and that is the pathway towards our redemption. Think about it. Mary and Joseph, there was no wealth. There was no wealth to speak of, no family that would come beside them. There's no one outside to go have the baby and then run outside and tell them, hey, everybody's okay. There's, that, there's no one who's rushing in to like, when do I get to hold the baby? There's no picture moments. There's none of that. They're just there having a baby alone. This morning I read this quote. Henceforth, uh, humanity has the right to know that it's good to be human. It's good to live on this earth. It's good to have a body. Because God in Jesus Christ said yes to our humanity by taking all those things in. Listen, I can't wait to heaven. I can't wait to the the freedom that would come and the end of sorrows. I can't wait for all of those things. But it can't cause me or any of us to hate the humanity we're in because God has called us to this humanity. And God has called our humanity good by giving us Jesus in this humanity. That redeems the struggle of an earthbound body. It redeems the the struggle, even of broken relationships and our pain. Because we know that Christ came and assumed all that in great compassion and was in sorrow for us for the very purpose to redeem all of this. Friends, let me move us towards a a conclusion. I mean, every week, I just want to keep going, but I'm I'm excited I get three more weeks to do this just from from Advent. Uh, Because the work of Christ in this is the wonderful Christmas moments we all know. But it's the beginning of the giant unraveling of shame that began in the garden. Now let's move towards uh, our end here. Uh, The end of shame, there's three things, friends. Unkept promises. And you guys, there's so much we could have talked about here. There's unkept promises from spouses or parents or even the church. And all those things are tempted to lead us into bitterness and shame. But those unkept promises are opportunities for us to cling to a heavenly father who kept his. Lack of compassion, lack of parent, uh, like again, lack of compassion from uh, a teacher or a friend or a parent or a spouse or the church. All of those are fertile grounds for bitterness and shame. Or they're opportunities for to be thankful for the compassion that Jesus showed to us by enduring those things. Humiliation are either those things that we don't tell anyone about, or perhaps they're funny stories that can be introductions for sermons. But we all have those moments of humiliation, and they mark us. But Christ was a man of sorrows who endured those things, and had to endure all those things, so he could make a sacrifice that satisfied the wrath of God. Our truth this week is this. The lowly birth of Jesus is evidence that God keeps his promise to remove our shame. The lowly birth of Jesus is evidence to you. That God said, I'm going to redeem you from sin and shame, and he did. Application. Live knowing that Jesus redeemed every discompassionate, humiliating, unkept promise that you've ever experienced. Every time someone withheld compassion from you. Every time... That you've been humiliated. Every time a promise wasn't kept. Every one of those. Is a reminder of the work of Jesus to meet you. It is an opportunity for you to extend compassion to others. Guys, listen to me. This is going to be hard for you to apply. Right now it is. It's going to be really hard for you to apply. And then there's a ton of people who aren't here right now. Not just of evident grace, but just your community. But this is the work of the church. This is the application of the gospel. Not making the perfect Christian. That's not it. It's not. The work of the church is for the gospel to dig down into the depths of what's going on in our lives. And as you walk through that, that brave process of the gospel touching the most quiet and secretly kept part of your life, that is God being glorified. And it is the opportunity for this church to have a rich depth in its community. It's the opportunity for where uh, things that would otherwise cause division and in the world and even the church, it's the opportunity for that not to happen here. It's the opportunity for this church to grow Gamebusters in the coming year, because every person needs this. Ebony Grace can't offer every single thing to our community. I can give you a list of things that other churches can offer better than us, but I know we have this. In this, every single person in our community needs to hear. I mean, all week long, the action has been empty, I'm going to tell you. It, uh, when I sent the notes out this week, it, it originally said, it doesn't even pop up. Like, like it originally, I know, there's just nothing there. It originally said, uh, look, I'll give it to you on Sunday. And then they came and asked me, like, what is it? And I'm like, I don't know. I still don't know. I mean, I just, I still don't know. I'm just going to tell you to ponder this this week. I really am. I don't know what to tell you to do. I've had to ponder this this week. I can give you a list of humiliating, unkept promises. I really can. I've wept this week. And I know that God provides me with a great family and a church and people that love me. And I know you guys have that too. But there's times you just have to sit... And, and just ponder the goodness of God to your hurt. And we don't want to ponder those things. We don't, because it's shameful. We don't want to revisit them. We think it's safer for them to remain silent in our lives, but it's not. It's not. Unspoken of shame is poison to the soul. It just continues to leak and leak and leak. Guys, just ponder this this week. You know, I, I, mean, I. a quote I didn't even get to. Uh, guys, that Brene Brown quote I skipped, would you throw that up there? If you can, go backwards. Uh, they're doing great. I, I'm not. Uh, Brene Brown, I told you, if it's not up there, I will send it out to you in the goods this week. Um, I didn't think it was what we needed to hit, but now I do. If you're wondering who Brene Brown is, I'm going to quote her a lot. She's a Christian. She's a psychologist who studied shame. She's not part of our denomination. If you read her, you're going to find something you disagree with, but her understanding of the gospel and shame is amazing. She said this. She said, We believe the most terrifying. There we go. You guys are awesome. We believe the most terrifying and destructive feeling that a person can experience is psychological isolation. This is not the same as being alone. It's a feeling that one is locked out of the possibility of human connection and of being powerless to change the situation. In the extreme, psychological isolation can lead to a sense of hopelessness and desperation. People will do almost anything to escape this combination of condemned isolation and powerlessness. This is what we're really wrestling with, with sin and shame. Because you can be alone and be okay. Some of us love being alone. But psychological isolation means there's no one who understands this. That's different. That's just an internal hopelessness. And and, and she's right. People will do anything to escape that. They'll pursue any physical consolation, which leads into a host of sin. When you see people in in relationships, you go, why would you date that guy again? You know what I'm talking about? Like, why would you do that again? And part of it is to escape some sense of psychological isolation, right? That's the power of shame. I put this quote up here to say, this is how the gospel meets all that. God's promises are kept. His compassion shows up. He endured humiliation, so you didn't. You're not alone, physically or spiritually, because of Jesus Christ. That's the hope of this. Nothing else. And then building a community around that hope. That's the gospel. That's what we need to see take root. It takes so much bravery. We're going to get it wrong, and then we have to show grace to each other when we continue to persevere. Friends, so much here. Just pray with me. Let's pray that God will continue to meet us here. Uh, Father, I, I feel like um, I'm thankful we could come back again next Sunday because I feel like we're just uh, we're just on the edge of really touching on these things, but I know that your your spirit is powerful enough to work even in this 35 and 40 minutes. Make us a deep, rich community. Give us grace, compassion. Thank you that you keep promises. Thank you for Christ taking on all of this for us. Thank you that we're not alone. Father, may we grow in depth and compassion and understanding of the gospel May we have a great desire to see that reach one another into our community. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.